Chapter Twenty Six, Part Two of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six, The Restoration, Part Two. In May to September, sixteen sixty-two, Parliament ratified the change to episcopacy. It seems to have been thought that few preachers, except the protesters, would be recalcitrant, refuse collation from bishops, and leave their manses. In point of fact, though they were allowed to consult their consciences till February sixteen sixty-three. Nearly three hundred ministers preferred their consciences to their livings. They remained centres of the devotion of their flocks, and the curates, hastily gathered, who took their places, were stigmatised as ignorant and profligate, while, as they were resisted, rabbled, and daily insulted, the country was full of disorder. The government thus mortally offended the devout classes, though no attempt was made to introduce a liturgy. In the churches the service were exactly, or almost exactly, what they had been, but excommunications could now only be done by sanction of the bishops. Witch-burnings, in spite of the opposition of George Mackenzie and the council, were soon as common as under the covenant. Oaths declaring it unlawful to enter into covenants or take up arms against the king were imposed on all persons in office. Middleton, of his own authority, now proposed the ostracism, by parliamentary ballot, of twelve persons reckoned dangerous. Lauderdale was mainly aimed at, it is a pity that the bullet did not find its billet, with Crawford, Cassilisus, Tweeddale, Lothian, and other peers who did not approve of the recent measures. But Lauderdale, in London, seeing Charles Daly, won his favour. Middleton was recalled, March 1663, and Lauderdale entered freely on his wavering, unscrupulous, corrupt, and disastrous period of power. The Parliament of June 1663, meeting under Roths, was packed by the least constitutional method of choosing the lords of the articles. Oristoun was brought from France, tried and hanged, expressing more fear than I ever saw, wrote Lauderdale, whose act against separation and disobedience to ecclesiastical authority fined abstainers from services in their parish churches. In 1664 Sharp, who was despised by Lauderdale and Glencarn, obtained the erection of that old grievance, a court of high commission, including bishops, to punish nonconformists. Sir James Turner was entrusted, with the task of dragooning them, by fining and the quartering of soldiers on those who could not attend the curates, and would keep conventicles. Turner was naturally clement and good-natured, but wine often deprived him of his wits, and his soldiery behaved brutally. Their excesses increased discontent, and war with Holland, 1664, gave them hopes of a Dutch ally. Conventicles became common. They had an organization of scouts and sentinels. The malcontents intrigued with Holland in 1666, and schemed to capture the three keys of the kingdom, the castles of Stirling, Dumbarton, and Edinburgh. The states-general promised, when this was done, to send ammunition and 150,000 guilders, July 1666. When rebellion did break out, it had no foreign aid, and a casual origin. In the southwest, Turner commanded but seventy soldiers, scattered all about the country. On November 14th, some of them mishandled an old man in the Clocken of Dalry, on the Ken. A soldier was shot in revenge. Mackenzie speaks as if a conventicle was going on in the neighborhood. People gathered in arms, with the Lord of Corsac, young Maxwell of Monreath, and Malennan, caught Turner, undressed in Dumfries, and carried him with them as they went conventicling about, as Mackenzie writes, holding prayer-meetings, led by Wallace, an old soldier of the Covenant. 
At Lanark they renewed the covenant. Dalziel of Binns, who had learned war in Russia, led a pursuing force. The rebels were disappointed in hopes of Dutch or native help at Edinburgh. They turned, when within three miles of the town, into the passes of the Pentland Hills, and at Bullion Green, on November 28th, displayed fine soldierly qualities and courage, but fled broken at nightfall. The soldiers and country folk, who were unsympathetic, took a number of prisoners, preachers and laymen, on whom the council, under the presidency of Sharp, exercised a cruelty bred of terror. The prisoners were defended by George Mackenzie. It has been strangely stated that he was Lord Advocate, and persecuted them. Fifteen rebels were hanged. The use of torture to extract information was a return, under Fletcher, the King's Advocate, to a practice of Scottish law which had been almost in abeyance since 1638, except, of course, in the case of witches. Turner vainly tried to save from the boot the Lord of Corsac, who had protected his life from the fanatics. The executioner favoured Mr. MacHale, says the Reverend Mr. Kirkton, himself a sufferer later. This Mr. MacHale, when a lad of twenty-one, had already denounced the rulers in a sermon as on the moral level of Haman and Judas. It is entirely untrue that Sharp concealed the letter from the king, commanding that no blood should be shed. Charles detested hanging people. If any one concealed his letter, it was Burnett, Archbishop of Glasgow. Dalziel now sent Ballantine to supersede Turner and to exceed him in ferocity, and Bellenden and Tweedale wrote to Lauderdale, deprecating the cruelties and rapacity of the reaction, and avowing contempt of Sharp. He was snibbed, confined to his diocese, and cast down, yea, lower than the dust, wrote Roths to Lauderdale. He was said to have exaggerated in his reports the forces of the spirit of revolt, but Tweeddale, Sir Robert Murray, and Kincardine found, when in power, that matters were really much more serious than they had supposed. In the disturbed districts, mainly the old Strathclyde and Pictus Galloway, the conformist ministers were perpetually threatened, insulted, and robbed. According to a sympathetic historian, on the day when Charles should abolish bishops and permit free general assemblies, the western Whigs would become his law-abiding subjects, but till that day they would be irreconcilable. But a government is not always well advised in yielding to violence. Moreover, when government had deserted its clergy, and had granted free general assemblies, the two covenants would re-arise, and the pretensions of the clergy to dominate the state would be revived. Lauderdale drifted into a policy of alternate indulgences or tolerations, and of repression, which had the desired effect, at the maximum of cost to justice and decency. Before England drove James the Second from the throne, but a small remnant of fanatics were in active resistance, and the covenants had ceased to be dangerous. A scheme of partial toleration was mooted in 1667, and Roths was removed from his practical dictatorship, while Turner was made the scapegoat of Roths, Sharp, and Dalziel. The result of the scheme of toleration was an increase in disorder. Bishop Leighton had a plan for abolishing all but a shadow of episcopacy, but the temper of the recalcitrants displayed itself in a book, Naphtali, advocating the right of the godly to murder their oppressors. This work contained provocations to anarchism, and, in Knox's spirit, encouraged any Phineas conscious of a call from heaven to do justice on such persons as he found guilty of troubling the godly. Fired by such Christian doctrines, on July 11, 1668, one Mitchell, a preacher of the gospel and a youth of much zeal and piety, says Woodrow, the historian, shot at Sharp, wounded the Bishop of Orkney in the street of Edinburgh, and escaped. 
This event delayed the project of conciliation, but in July 1669 the first indulgence was promulgated. On making certain concessions, ousted ministers were to be restored. Two and forty came in, including the resolutioner Douglas, in 1660 the correspondent of Sharp. The indulgence allowed the indulged to reject Episcopal collation, but while brethren exiled in Holland denounced the scheme, these brethren, led by Mr. MacWard, opposed all attempts at reconciliation. It also offended the archbishops, who issued a remonstrance. Sharp was silenced, Burnett of Glasgow was superseded, and the see was given to the saintly but unpractical Leighton. By 1670 conventiclers met in arms, and a clanking act, as Lauderdale called it, menaced them with death. Charles II resented but did not rescind it. In fact, the disorders and attacks on conformist ministers were of a violence much overlooked by our historians. In 1672 a second indulgence split the Carrick into factions, the exiles in Holland maintaining that preachers who accepted it should be held men unholy, false brethren. But the indulged increased in numbers, and finally in influence. To such a man as Leighton the whole quarrel seemed a scuffle of drunken men in the dark. An Englishman entering a Scottish church at this time found no sort of liturgy. Prayers and sermons were what the minister chose to make them. In fact, there was no persecution for religion, says Sir George Mackenzie. But if men thought even a shadow of episcopacy an offence to omnipotence, and the king's authority in ecclesiastical cases a usurping of the crown honours of Christ, if they consequently broke the law by attending armed conventicles and assailing conformist preachers, and then were fined or imprisoned, from their point of view they were being persecuted for their religion. Meanwhile they bullied and rabbled the curates for their religion. Such was Leighton's drunken scuffle in the dark. In 1672 Lauderdale married the rapacious and tyrannical daughter of Will Murray, of old the whipping-boy of Charles I, later a disreputable intriguer. Lauderdale's own ferocity of temper and his greed had created so much dislike that in Parliament of 1673 he was met by a constitutional opposition headed by the Duke of Hamilton, and with Sir George Mackenzie as its orator. Lauderdale consented to withdraw monopolies on salt, tobacco, and brandy. To other grievances he would not listen. The distresses of the Kirk were not brought forward. And he dissolved the Parliament. The opposition tried to get at him through the English commons, who brought against him charges like those which were fatal to Strafford. They failed, and Lauderdale, holding seven offices himself, while his brother Haltoun was master of the mint, ruled through a kind of clique of kinsmen and creatures. Leighton, in despair, resigned his see. The irreconcilables of the Kirk had crowned him with insults. The Kirk, he said, abounded in furious zeal and endless debates about the empty name and shadow of a difference in government, in the meanwhile not having of solemn and orderly public worship as much as a shadow. End of chapter 26, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.